On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we have a very special guest. His name is Rich Christensen. He and I had a very intimate conversation about some really personal events that happened in his life recently. He is a well-known entrepreneur in our state, and I just can't wait to have you get to know him. He also has some really incredible new projects that he talks about as well. So let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We are here today with a friend of mine that um, I really got to know when Spencer and I were campaigning. Um, just just a really um, incredibly sincere person and somebody that, that we have just become really dear friends with. Um, Rich Christensen, it's so nice to have you here. It's so just wonderful here. And uh, Abby, I just so respect you and Spencer and what you've done for the politics, but more importantly... Uh, the example you set and how you live your life, and I couldn't be—you couldn't find bigger fans and supporters. No one dares say anything negative around me because <laughs> they'll they'll lose their head. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, those we we love you and Gay, and we've just we've just become such such good friends, and um, we're, I'm just. I'm I'm so excited to have you here because um, I went on your podcast uh, a little. Hell, it's been. Oh, it's been three or four months ago yeah, at least. It, but it was a while ago, and um, I told my story. You wanted me to talk about the surrogacy story, yeah. um, that my experience with me and my sister in law, and um, got pretty vulnerable on your podcast. So tender, so deeply tender, and so many beautiful comments and courage that came out of that. So I'm very nervous about today because I know what's coming my way now. <laughs> so, no, this this will be really good conversation. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about you. Tell me where you grew up, uh, a little bit about your, your family background. You know, I grew up in Beaver, Utah. I am very proud of that. Uh, as I've, I've been, most of my career has been internationally and throughout the world. And I make this statement. I grew up in a rural community where there's 2,000 of us, if you count the cows. <laughs> uh, my father was the county attorney, blind county attorney, uh, lost his uh, sight at the age of four years old and uh, ended up, he had an eidetic memory and was the longest elected official in the state of Utah. And boy, if you were a bad guy in my community. You did not want to get caught because my dad was sending you to jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, and everybody that drives to St. George and back, which, you know, a lot of us do, um, you know that you don't speed uh, in Beaver either because you'll, you, and not because it's highway patrol. It's because the Beaver uh, police there like to give tickets as well. <laughs> well, not that that's an economic center, but <laughs> maybe that and the cheese curds at the creamery. <laughs> that's exactly right. Everybody stops at the creamery. <laughs> Um, so do you still have family there? I do. My younger brother actually is the county attorney down there. Oh, so he took uh, kind of my dad's uh, my dad's role. Yeah. And uh, a lot of relatives down there. But most of our family is is, is out of yeah the town. My dad died last year. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, you know, when you live in rural Utah, uh, you you tend to stay in rural Utah. You, a lot. Do. you, you hope you can. And that's kind of the. The economic piece, too, is is really tough because sometimes the jobs aren't there and we, we try to work on that as well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the beautiful things you're doing is this impact on rural rural Utah, something I feel really strongly about, as you're aware. I'm very actively involved in Southern Utah University and help set up that entrepreneurship center down there. And it's one of the key areas we just have to focus on. We have to make sure that we get 
uh, inclusion down there also, yeah. the equal economic. And I think we're we're making progress. Yeah, yeah. You you've done a lot with your, and I want to get into that. But I want to also go back to so you you had. Your your father was blind. He was, um, and and what what was that like as a child? Oh, it was it was you know you you don't know a lot different. I'm the oldest of four boys, and it's a beautiful love story. My my father, uh, right in the middle of the Great Depression, uh, discovered he had retinal blastoma, and so my grandparents were faced with a terrible decision with this little boy. The first they could remove it, but the second eye they had to make the decision. Do we remove the second eye and give him maybe a one in 50 chance of living because no one was living or do we let him see but then he'll die by the age of eight years old? Mm -hmm. I'm very confident in today's world they would have got divorced. There was a lot of conflict over that. My grandfather ended up uh, winning the argument. They removed his eyes and uh, the story is now told. He went to school of the blind. Uh, he played the piano beautifully. He did. He had an eidetic memory. You you did not get away with garbage in my home. He could hear anything, and you better come with your facts because he, he could requote. Abby, he could, if you said a number 30 years later, he could do it. And he scared judges, I think, oftentimes because he could recite case law that he had heard 20 years ago. Amazing. Yeah, that amazing man. Just incredible. And beautiful, too, because my mother was 16 years his junior, had received like three uh, wedding proposals and came down and fell in love with my father as the art teacher. So I, as the oldest child, I had this beautiful kind of dance of eyes for my father with the logic, but also then expressing the colors to my mother. So it was a very unique, charmed in many ways uh, growing up, but also... Um, it wasn't normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but very. Uh, oh, what a what a blessing! What a blessing! Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. Um, so then you uh, you left Beaver and went where to? Where'd you go to school? I went to I I went to BYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and, and Southern Utah University. I went down chased my my sweetheart, my wife, Gay. Uh, down at SUU and got got to marry her. I got a, a degree in electrical engineering and then got my MBA. So I love Beaver, but uh, wasn't a lot of economic opportunity there. And and I I I don't know. I just curious and kind of yeah left Beaver and and spent most of my career in uh, technology, uh, helping companies, large companies across business chasms, and then shifted from there. Okay, so. When so after you and Gay married, then where did you you finished at BYU? Yeah, or? I went up to BYU. Okay. Went up to BYU, and uh, we were dirt poor. We had five hundred dollars to our name. A Dodge Colt that had been. I know you and Spencer can relate. Yeah. <laughs> but it was amazing years. We lived. Uh, we jokingly said we lived on potatoes and love. I think our weekly food budget was like fourteen dollars a week. Yeah. But it was it was just a joyful, crazy time. Um, my wife is also from Southern Utah. She is a cedar girl. Uh, youngest of nine uh, children, dairy farm, and just an amazing woman. And so found the true love of my life and still hanging on for all I have. <laughs> she is amazing too. I know her um, to be that. She um, So then you, you settled in uh, Spanish Fork. Yeah, we, we originally were in Provo, Orem area, Abbey. Okay. And uh, then eventually we just kind of ended up in Spanish Fork. 
So just feels a little area. more rural. I yeah, guess. <laughs> yeah, it did. And at that point, it was really comfortable, and it was the one place where pollution wasn't yeah. blew all it out of the canyon. And so we just just kind of kept felt drawn there, and just we've raised our family there and love it. Okay. And then you you went through your career, and then and this is the part that um, that maybe we'll get into a little bit that mm-hmm. might be a little bit vulnerable, and and you share what you feel comfortable with, but. Um, uh, you you told me a story after I got off your podcast um, about a, a really interesting life discovery and, yeah. and something that sort of shook your world. Talk, you talk a little bit about that as much as you you feel comfortable. Well, thank you, Abby. And I, I you know, I, I just have to boldly say right up front here, not many people could pull this out of me. <laughs> so those of you who know me, uh, this is probably new news for you. But our family did have a pretty significant uh, discovery four or five years ago. And keeping in mind, you know, my my entire identity and my brother's identity, I got three younger brothers, amazing man. And by the way, if you're listening, brothers, I love the dickens out of you. And sorry if uh, I'm outing uh, you here a little bit, but my younger brother Brett's a doctor, Vaughn is an attorney, and then Daryl is a designer. So really amazing, amazing brothers. And so grateful. And a lot of our identity came out of being the son of John Christensen and this amazing artist, Laurel Christensen, and just held ourselves and they held us to a much higher standard. I mean, I, I know it sounds crazy, but A-minuses just weren't acceptable. You know? <laughs> it was like there wasn't a lot said, but we just uh, were expected to perform at a really high level and very grateful for it. With that came some really interesting dynamics. Uh, you don't see most six-year-olds inside the engine of a car tuning the carburetor. Well, I was. And so there was, a, there was a lot of expectations. I also had the opportunity to be the eyes of my dad. So if he went to speak, I was holding his arm and taking him up. And so kind of got really comfortable at a young age, Abby, of you know being a little uncomfortable. And maybe I related, I don't know if it's tragically or joyfully, to the adults a lot more than I did to my peers. And so although I loved growing up in Beaver, there was aspects of it that just didn't really fine-tune in to, to what I wanted to be. So um, I, I had went through this phases of life. I'd, uh, I went through my career, became a, a fairly prolific entrepreneur, but uh, had kind of always had a little bit of struggle. Okay, uh, trying to please my dad to a certain extent, my whole goal was is could I – uh, get recognition of, of my father and could never quite figure out. You know, I just couldn't quite do it close, but no cigar yeah. sometimes, you know, <laughs> in a very loving way, amazing man, but just never could quite get all the way there. I remember a huge disappointment when I, I wrote a national bestselling book in 2013. Uh, I think it was number five in its category. And I was so excited because now my dad could introduce me. He'd typically introduce a uh, Brett's a doctor. I went to that John Hopkins University, and Vaughn. I told him not to do it, but he's an attorney. And girl, he designs those temples and those fancy buildings for the church. Now, Richard, I don't know what he does. And so that was kind of how I got introduced my whole life. I was like, "No, Dad, I'm actually I'm, me too, me too, Dad." You know. <laughs> so I write this best-selling book, and it's like I take it to him, and and so excited. And his comment was, "Well, it's an okay book, Rich, but there's a few grammatical problems oh, on no. a page 143." So uh, lots of love and tenderness, but also just a little bit of interesting dynamic. And um, my wife and I had just come back from uh, – we were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and come back. And my brother, Daryl, uh, who we'd jokingly called – he's the milkman's son. Brett Vaughn and I look exactly the same. We're very similar. We're kind of you know fidgety like you see, and we're going, going. And Daryl's just like kind of deliberate, more slow, dead, just stone good-looking growing up. 
really dark skin, and so we'd always just jokingly call him the milkman's son. And so he was jokingly for his uh, 40th birthday party, or 42nd, I forget, he was going to have a DNA reveal. So he uh, called all his friends together, had a big hot dog party. His wife puts on this amazing uh, party. And uh, for his birthdays, we all love going to him. And uh, did the DNA reveal, and it came out that he was 50% ascetic Jew. Oh, my word. So it's like, what's that? Well, and we're all joking. Well, that's worth what it, uh, you know, you pay for it. <laughs> 50 bucks and Cracker Jack box. And yeah, that's about what you got. And we're joking. And then it starts coming out and discovering. It's like, no, no. And then um, so at that point, we're like, oh, my heck, what is going on here? What's the deal, Mom? Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a conversation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want me to just keep going? Yeah, or I, I feel like I'm kind well, of deep yes. Into it. Keep going. Oh my heck! Oh, if you're comfortable, I, I can't believe here I go. <laughs> <laughs> boop boop boop! Here we go. <laughs> uh, so at that point, it kind of became really no. There's something here, and my mother died of breast cancer uh, quite a while ago. My I, although she was junior, my dad's. Uh, I, anyone that knows my father, John or Christian, anyone knows he's just simply a remarkable man. He never used to see my dog. He never used to cane. He just, oh, just amazing man. And um, so my younger, our identity's tied into that. My younger brothers, Vaughn and Brett, are saying, oh, my heck, what happened, Mom? It's like cause she was really just really a pure, good woman. And so then we get thinking, oh, man, was there a rape involved or what's the deal? Was Daryl adopted? And they start asking me that. So, no, I remember I was there when Daryl was born. And then my younger brother, uh, Brett, had got a uh, DNA test also and his came back and it confirmed that they were half brothers. And then Vaughn got one and they're all half brothers. It then uh, – I'm, I'm confident Dad staying with us at that point and I'm helping him shower. He's uh, like 93 for 94 years old at that point and I'm helping him shower. It's like, oh, man, that's what I got to look forward to. Oh, Dad, that's me. Yep. And uh, at that point, we'd say, we knew something was majorly up but we really didn't know. Okay, Mom, was there something going down here? Or, and so we went and snuck a paternity test my brothers and i all took a paternity test and without them without your dad knowing. well dad he'd do anything brett said if it was a test and dr brett had ordered he'd do it so (laughs) uh, i hope i'm not hitting legal problems here i'm (laughs) confessing to the governor's wife but (laughs) dr brett ordered a a, a test okay okay yeah (laughs) yeah it was maybe not authorized but nonetheless we did it Send it in, and we went up to my cabin, and uh, back came the results. And indeed, uh, Daryl Tyrus Christensen is not the son of John Oric Christensen. Um, Vaughn Joseph Christensen is not the son of John Oric Christensen. Brett David Christensen is not the son of John Oric Christensen, and Richard John Christensen is not the son of John Oric Christensen. None of them. I could have been washed away with a feather. I mean, we were all on the floor at that point. What the heck? What the heck? You know? Yeah. And I remember when I was 13 or something, because I was, I, I couldn't help myself. I was an entrepreneur in Beaver. You know, everyone's wanting to like ride, ride, uh, 
bowls and, yeah. and, and, you know, bouquet. And it's like, all I want to do is I want to golf and I want to sell stuff. I want to create businesses. And so <laughs> I was like the weird kid. I was definitely the weirdo kid in Beaver. <laughs> I went to my mom when I was going and says, am I adopted or something? It's like, I'm weird. I just don't fit here. Yeah. She says, no, 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 no. She says, son, you're absolutely son. And so she assured me and calmed me down a little bit. And so there, there was honestly, Abby, a lot of feeling of a tender feelings of defiance, of trust. And, uh, but now we've got a terrible dilemma. Uh, we've got a 94-year-old father. Yeah. And um, do you then ask him about it? Was mother maybe unfaithful in the relationship? Yeah. We've had a real dilemma, yeah. and we all agree, knowing our mother, no, no, there's no way. There's no way that mom, you know, had had a bunch of affairs. And so Vaughn, who dad was living with at that time, says, I'm going to talk to dad. So uh, he went and had a conversation with dad, and dad's said, oh, you caught us? That was going to be the first order of business in the next life. <laughs> really? <laughs> that was his comment. So wow. he uh, – he says, I'm only going to say this one time. I'm going to tell this one time. And uh, so you all need to be there. So uh, the following week, went, we went back up to my cabin with our spouses, and, and Dad shared what had occurred. Uh, I assume you want to hear what yeah, occurred. I do, and we will, we will hear that, the rest of the story, when we come right back. We're back here with Rich Christensen. We're in the middle of a, a, a really tender story. Um, one that you have yet to share publicly until just this moment. Um, and you, you find out that, that you, um, through paternity tests, that you were not your father's biological son, nor were any of your brothers. So let's, let's continue the story. When you get back together at the cabin, he's ready to tell this story one time, and that's all he's going to do. Um, um, what was the story? Well, uh, first of all, Abby, I thank you for providing a safe environment because this hasn't been told publicly. And I think it was your transparency and openness and tenderness with me that that I think provides a venue that I feel comfortable doing it. So, um, yeah, we're up at our cabin and my uh, my father shares this story that he and my mother had got engaged. Uh, my dad was this, this beautiful, good man, but he was blind. Who's going to marry a blind man, you know, even though he's very accomplished? And it wasn't from a lack of trying, from what I hear. He, he, he <laughs> had pretty good hormones, and he was trying the best he could. But my mom finally fell in love with him, this beautiful, beautiful woman. And then when they were engaged, someone said, now what are you going to do about children? Because, you know, retinoblastoma is genetic. Mm. And it floored him. So he and mom went and confirmed, and indeed it was genetic. And uh, so then my mother, I want children. What am I going to do? And so they, they actually broke up or were on the verge of breaking up because uh, there was really no options. And dad made the decision he would uh, get sterilized because he was not willing to bring children into the world. And at least 50% of us would have ended up with retinal blastoma. Having it been in both eyes, it was a dominant gene. At least 50% of his children would have had retinal blastoma, and he was not willing to do that. So they did something very unique and very unheard of. And that was um, there had been a doctor moved from New York City, the University of Utah, and they were doing some of the first uh, artificial insemination in the world. And uh, uh, keeping in mind at that point in that culture, that was the 60s. 
And that was out of frame. Culturally, in religious practice, my understanding, I haven't verified this, my understanding it actually resolved in excommunication in our religion, in our faith that that we practiced. So my father wrote a a letter to the the first presidency of the religion and asked permission and supposedly got that back at what point my mother and father made the decision to get married. And uh, two years later, poop. I'm here, (laughs) and so I I, I, was. I was one of the first. It was just this was just taking place here in Utah, New York, from my understanding, and I was one of the first donor-conceived children in the world. Wow! Yeah, wow. So that was the discovery that we had. Dad only talked about this once. It was at the cabin. It's the only time I've seen my dad cry in his entire life. Mm -hmm. He was heartbroken, but at the same time. What a glorious life. And, uh, you know, in all transparency, it was tough. It was really tough. I mean, all I think all four of my brothers, although I want to be careful not to speak for them, they're amazing men, and I think we all have taken our own path through that. I went and very aggressively got help mm-hmm. and sought out the professionals, the top professionals in the world to talk me through and get framed. My wife was amazingly patient with me because, quite frankly, every trust I had was fractured. Um, there was one point where I, we called a big family dinner and did a paternity test because I wanted to see physical proof my children, my children. And so, <laughs> I know it sounds trust crazy. Trust issues, yeah. <laughs> well, it, yeah, trust issues it was, but yeah. it took a lot of processing and work through and to frame, uh, find the words because uh, yeah. at that point it's pretty damaged. Uh, again, I haven't confirmed this, but I was told by this donor conception group that one of the highest instances of suicide – and taking life is in this category and group. I didn't know it, that. It's wow. the only group where the interests of the parents are represented above the interest of the child. And indeed, that's something that at least I I did struggle with because that being kept and not understanding um, through really interesting technology, there are no more secrets. I'm just saying. <laughs> now that we have DNA. <laughs> There's this big warning that flashes on 23andMe, and then it says is, we cannot be held accountable for what you might discover here, and you may not like what you discover. And that was the short version of the three-page legal disclaimer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, wow. I think it's a crazy number. It's like 20% of parentage is not what you think it is. Unbelievable. Wow. So it was really a quite a discovery. And so uh, when your when your trust is, I mean, I guess that's yeah. So you're having to really explore. I mean, I, we had an experience recently, nothing like this, obviously, um, uh, where we were very betrayed um, by someone, and and it was really like very difficult. Yeah. So I can't imagine. Uh, you know, yeah, that's going to take a lot of trauma work. I think I know what you're talking about and with tenderness and love that we do it. And I think part of the life experience is growing through that. But in hindsight, what would I have done? Would I have not valued life? Now, people say the darndest things and you need to think through, particularly donor conception. I mean, I I won't go through the things that were said, but it wasn't healing. Uh, I mean, I could, I'm not going to even say them, but it's like, you still want to get my blood pressure up a little bit. I'll say some of them. And it's like, you got to be really, really careful what you say, because it is a really tender, delicate situation. And the thing that I really concluded is DNA really matters. We all deeply do kind of want to know our parentage and our roots and where we we come from here. Uh, As I discovered mine, it ended up being joyful. And all four of us boys have now discovered our parentage. 
really? our biological. And it doesn't take away at all from what our parents did. Yeah. If anything, deeper love and appreciation. But yeah, I, I discovered I had to go through the motion, as you had shared with me so beautifully and tenderly. You ex- described some of the motion you had to work through, Abby, mm-hmm. even after doing this beautiful uh, experience that you did. There's emotion with it. And definitively there was feelings of betrayal and then trust and then looking at all the sides. And by the time I got this thing turned around, I've come out. It took me a couple of three years, but I've come out it now just like, man, I got to be the luckiest guy that ever freaking walked the earth. (laughs) (laughs) And I know my brothers, I think, feel a lot that same way. Do they? That's I wondered you. I'm sure people have to process it in different ways and – They've handled it differently, but mm-hmm. I, we all agreed we got to follow our own path. And my path was honestly, I, and I'm not ashamed of it, but I did seek the best therapist in the world. And that's why courageous conversations yeah. <laughs> is, is facing our fears fierce with reality and going towards the things that scare us the most. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, it just it all makes perfect sense, Abby. I don't think you've ever met a person in your life that began writing in their children's journals and kept entries in their journals before they were conceived (laughs) have you no i did that's so wild i did all five of my sons why because fundamentally i knew i knew that something wasn't right wow i I knew something wasn't right and it didn't come out till post-mortem but so much of it makes sense now uh reflecting and looking back and it's not bad There's hard things with it, but there's also beautiful, good things. Even the tender relationship of a child. And I'm sure that as I was growing up and doing all my weird little wanting to sell stuff and throw a ball, can't help it. We've got to throw a a ball and chase a golf ball. It's like, who golfs in Beaver, Utah? My heavens. Well, (laughs) guess what? My biological father, he lived for golf. And the only thing he loved more than golfing was golf ball hunting. My brother Brett and I are both from the the same biological father. Okay. We can't help but chase a golf ball. And the only thing we like hitting golf more than that is as if there's a golf ball in the bush. As a matter of fact, when we were in college, we started a tradition, and we have not broke it down once, that one day a year we would golf ball hunt from morning to light while we were golfing. Come to find out our biological father was like a, a – they says, oh, he loved to golf, but it was embarrassing because he was a fairly well-known doctor. And uh, if he was golfing and went into a bush, he wouldn't come out for 10 minutes holding the forces behind him. So <laughs> it's like you can't make that stuff up, right? All of my biological father's children, he had six biological children and uh, all of them but one. They were all either entrepreneurs, hmm, where did I get that from, yeah. or in the medical industry. And all but one uh, are self-made multimillionaires. Incredible. Do you think – I think – I'm thinking about the adoption stories I've heard, and I know it's different, um, but it has some similar threads um, with adoption because there were, I think, again, many, many, many years ago, most adoptions were closed. Yeah. Most I I grew up with a a friend of ours, my like my, one of my sister's best friends, was adopted. I had no idea. Um, and until I was an adult that she and her brother were adopted and just in the last year or so, she's met her biological yeah. mother and I have a sister who has adopted two children and from the get go, they've known, yeah. they've talked about it. 
they've explained and said, you know, your your mother loved you. Yeah. She loved you enough to get. Yeah. Do you think that would have I, it's hard to go back, but do you think well, knowing that would be make know, a difference? It's such a complicated scenario. Yeah. yeah. It really is, and I, I don't think I haven't played that in my mind over and over again. I think in today's environment, Abby, it matters. It really matters. We all want to know our origin source, and it really mattered to me. I know it sounds crazy, but I, one, one of the biggest things that ripped me off is I started in a cup and that I was only paid $5 to, and then I jokingly said, I just want to know, is it Penthouse or Playboy? What was my inspiration? <laughs> I just want to know what my inspiration was. Five bucks in a cup, you know? And so it's like it sounded terrible, but the point was like, man, I just wish I would have been a product of a torrid affair. Because I would have known it was in love. So I think ultimately, at least in, I can't speak for everyone else, but in my situation, I w- would have greatly valued kind of knowing my source. But also growing up in Beaver, Utah, I was already the weird, nerdy, crazy kid. Right. Can Keep, you imagine in oh my gosh. That, you know, in the 70s, oh. you're telling your friends that, it, yeah, it's already weird I, enough to. <laughs> I spent half of my high school in a locker in a trash can or pants. Yeah. I. Yeah. I I would have, yeah, I can't even imagine what would have happened, Abby. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, do I fault my parents keeping in mind also, and in our religious practice, it was, it was, I mean, this was, I'm, I'm so far, I've always had a hard time with the lines. And no wonder, because I was so far over the line. To, to begin with. To begin with. <laughs> so I yeah. think the openness is good. That, yeah. I guess that's where I land on it is, is, Truth sets you free. Openness yeah. is good. But in this scenario, I don't know how my parents would have done anything different. Exactly. That's. I mean, you can try to go back and say, yes, it would have been nice to know. Would it have changed anything? And would it have brought more problems? You know, I'm sure they did exactly what they thought was was the right thing to do and that was the best thing for you. Well, and how... I, how can I complain? How much did a mother love me to go do that? Because my mom was, oh, she was very, she was very down the lane. And so that's why we had such a hard time imagining my mom in a twisted torta affair with four men. <laughs> it's like, we couldn't get our brain around that, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so a mother that loved and wanted us so bad that she would go to that level. And quite frankly, an amazing blind father that was beyond on the scope of any father I ever could ask for. Yeah. I, I, I won the freaking lottery, and I think my brothers feel the same way. I got the genes of a brilliant, amazing, good doctor that was entrepreneurial and creative and high energy and, and uh, the, the guidance of a father that was so honorable and so noble and hood, held the space so good logically and a mother that was deep love and creation. Mm-hmm. So what could have been a really... I think hard story we've really turned into just a beautiful story. Mm, that thank you for sharing and again I know, I know that's vulnerable and and I really um feel honored that you would share that with us. Um how has that changed the way you think about your own parenting or has it? Well, I think that's good, and I think that actually leads a little bit to this content that we're releasing, which is what we're calling Legato Family, because my wife and I did set a framework, a very interesting framework to raise our families. When we saw we were going to have some success, Abby, we made the determination that uh, that we were going to you know, create our own little framework because there wasn't a lot of structures out there to raise non-entitled producing value kids. So uh, we put this crazy little model in place that uh, we really never told anyone about. Okay. And through the course of this, the last couple of years, I don't have to describe it other than I've just had very, very strong spiritual guidance to the point of just like almost command 
that what I was not going to share needs to be shared. It needs to be shared because families are just under attack. They're just falling apart of the very visceral nature. Non-traditional families are, I think, even more in jeopardy and tribes are disintegrating. And so we've got to have tools to to unify. And I, I think that actually that experience led me to a protocol and kind of a a recipe that now has really turned into just this beautiful thing. Mm, okay. I've got these ama- five amazing sons. My daughter-in-law's kissed me on the forehead and hold on to me. And so it's just a beautiful relationship. We've been able to, I think, maybe heal some of the wounds that that, that we've seen uh, externally. So. Okay. Well, I want to continue this conversation. I want to dive in um, to Legato and exactly what it is and what you're doing um, and give me tips on how to... <laughs> raise non-entitled productive children so we'll be right back uh we're back here and it feels like we've gone through sort of a therapy session and we've we've shared a lot and and off air (laughs) a little off air a little on air but we um you know it's it's been really powerful and and i appreciate your your thoughts and and sharing your experiences today um we're again we're here with rich christensen um, as as you've moved through your career in entrepreneurship and and you've you've done some amazing work at SUU at UVU um, you've you've just you're you've been such a leader in the in the space of entrepreneurship and there are so many people in the state that that have an entrepreneur um, spirit um, but this idea of of kids. Passing your your legacy onto your kids is one that Spencer and I have struggled with, and thankfully, you know, we've spent our life in public service, so <laughs> there's there's not so much of it to to pass on. But um, but his dad's been an entrepreneur and and sold a business, and um, you talked about how do we figure out how to raise kids that are not entitled. Yeah. I think one of the triggers for me as a parent, and I think we all have them, but one of the triggers for me as a parent, because I did grow up so incredibly poor, um, we just we just didn't have a lot, yeah. um, is this sense of entitlement. Yeah. It, it irks me. Me I, too. I just, I just want to almost beat it out of them. <laughs> I me too. And so I would love your thoughts on on how you've put this together. You you feel like you've you've really been inspired. I have been um, to to put this together. So I I would love to hear what dead, what's come of dead it. straight up. I I don't I hate to use the inspired because it sounds so hoofy floofy tooty. You know, not just saying <laughs> it, but it's like I was definitely called that I needed to share this model and framework we've done, and then pull our family out of the framework and actually get other families that are doing it. And the last couple of years in all transparency, I have been teaching some of the most wealthy and influential families on this model and structure. And so this little legato family, that little gift box that you've got is the structure. I want to correct one thing that you make because legacy has nothing to do with money, nothing to do with your money. I'll never forget when your beautiful little daughter was sitting there on the back and I was interviewing Spencer. And we got very emotional, Abby. We were talking about how what did it mean to you that you didn't go negative in that bitter debate with uh, we won't say the name, but he was in a debate and he went negative on him. And Spencer made a commitment to me never to go negative when I jumped in support, and he never did. Not one time did I ever see him go negative on a campaign, and I commend him for that. And then he made the comment that you know it's really easy when you're 100 percent committed. It's really hard when you're 99 percent committed. And then I'd made a comment to him. 
the thing that mattered the most had nothing to do with this election. Come win or lose. I don't care if you lose the election, but maybe the biggest impact is that beautiful little daughter right there. That's legacy. That little girl saw her dad stand in integrity. And that's legacy. That's really what it is. It has nothing to do with money, what I want to pass on to my kids. Non-entitled happened to be one of them. So without little rant, can I go yeah. through the framework really yes, quickly because yes, I absolutely. think it is profound. Yeah. So I, th- I think a lot about this. The first thing, Abby, is, is we've got to set our values. Most people don't know what their values are. We know what the values are in the state. We know what the Utah Jazz's values are. Gosh, my Southern Utah University has defined values. In your companies, you have values and mission statements, but you know what your family values are. Have you went to the trouble to actually define and really clearly extract what the values are? Once you have those, you then equally got to decide which ones you throw away. So many of the younger generation are just throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. I mean, thousands of years of learned wisdom, throwing it out into the fire, really a stupid idea, by the way. But we do got to extract the values from our ancestry that don't serve us well. In both my wife and I's family, guilt and shame were used like peanut butter and jelly. It's like if you don't get the behavior you want, then throw a little guilt and shame on it. And we've actually formally extracted and thrown that away. Mm -hmm. So once you have a platform of values and the stuff I'm going to talk about, you can do do it without it. But without the values, it just let the rains come down and the floods come up, the rains come down and it all washes away. So you got to get clear on your values. Once you got your values – these five precipices, what holds any entity together, most families don't think to do this. First of all, do you have a family logo, Abby? Well, we have a campaign logo. <laughs> That's good. Well, that can hold a little bit. I said, no, most, I don't have well, a family logo. Look, SU, I'm wearing Thunderbirds, uh, the the T Birds. Uh, uh, Utah Jazz, dress in purple. That's Gotham. probably our logo too. The Utah Jazz. <laughs> there you go. We just we have a set of of, of logos <laughs> that we love. Nonetheless, it's really important as a family. Let's see. I don't think I'm wearing mine today. Oh, there I am. With, oh, that's my personal logo. But uh, have you thought to create a family logo? Do you know what your kid's spirit animal is? Do you know what they show up and manifest? Do you have a family crest? It's what identifies it. The Bloods and the Crips have logos. The Utah Jazz have a logo. Everyone knows if you're a Jazz fan or a Laker fan by the colors you're showing up. So as a family, you can unify and bond and bring families, non-traditional families and tribes together by simply creating logos and getting your kids and manifesting in their favorite colors. So the first p- pillar on that values is, is colors or it's, it's logos and symbology. The second is, is the doctrine, the defining doctrine. You have mission statements. You have slogans. You have all this in the government. Uh, We have constitution in the United States. We have all this doctrine that holds entities together. But you have a family mantra or a family mission statement. You have a family slogan. You have a family song or family theme. We do. (laughs) And if you do that, it deeply roots together and brings the, the family in unison. Ready for the next one? Yeah. Clearly defining what the traditions are, both the cadences of like prayer is a common you know, thing that many families in our culturally do. But whatever it is, is cadences of regular little traditions to bring unity and then really deep special ones. They're just almost like sacred. Um, I use the word sacred very deliberately because they're very offensive. I pledge allegiance. Uh, as I put my hand over the heart, what happens if someone bows – 
in a football game. That really offends people because they're really sacred to us. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we don't speak a lot about it. We got this beautiful little tradition we just did a couple of months ago with my new fourth little beautiful shout out to my daughter-in-law, my little redheader, Ash. And we take them down to the cabin on the mantle. We ha- have them raise their right arm and take the Christians in slogan. Mm-hmm. And a whole series of beautiful statements at what point I present a beautiful piece of custom-made jewelry, one a kind in the world made for them with their portion of the family symbol on, and then the family cheers, erupts, and formally welcomes the family. What does that do? That bonds deeply, deeply. When Spencer and you got inaugurated, what if you were inaugurating your family and putting really special rights uh, privileges in place? Mm. So yeah. is that making sense? Yeah, yeah. Values, throw away the bad, symbology, doctrine, and symbology. Then uh, our family went nuts, Abby. And so this next one's a little – the only way I know to describe it is, is to kind of tell ours. And is that okay if I mm-hmm. walk through that quickly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The lost arts of rites of passage. Mm. The lost art of rites of passage. And so my wife and I, as we got married, we agreed and put like about five of those in place. Mm. You want to hear them? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I this actually is really fascinating because we've talked about this, uh, Spencer and I, a lot about um, those those are missing. And that's, again, that's those are powerful things that bring people together. That box that I sent you, that's what, that, what this walks through. Yeah. And that's this framework. Um, so the fourth is really interesting when rites of passage has got a lot of tension. And so I'll just kind of run through what we kind of do there is, is it? And everyone's got to be different. I mean, you can't do mine. I can't do yours. Yep. So you got to define what your values are in order to do it. So when our children were eight, we'd take them on what's called an eight is great date. We let them pick where to go to dinner and then go in privately and talk dead straight open about sex, mm-hmm. about drugs, about technology, about bowling, and just open the dialogue and never finish it. Seems like a small thing, yep. but profoundly effective by opening that up. Um, when my sons turned 12, I would take them to – and I have all five sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would take them to a third world country for three weeks. The first week we'd play. We'd go to the Taj Mahal. We'd run up the Great Wall of China. We'd go to the Pokemon Center in Tokyo. I mean crazy. It sounds crazy <laughs> yeah. but fun life, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. The second week, we would go into Mother Krishna orphanages or go mm-hmm. into Nepal and hold the little lost – girls that had been rescued out of sexual slavery, even worse, killed and their organs harvested for donation into China and India and touch humanity. You don't come out of that entitled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So and then the third week coming back, we would um, we'd talk about what does it mean to be a Christian sin man, protect, provide, create white safe space for women and fix a lot of stuff. So that became the context of being a man as they turned 12 years old. So that point forward, we got this visceral, lovely relationship coupled with a context and and a flair of what it means to be a man. Mm. Ready for next? We yeah. have time for next. Yeah. 14 years old on top of a major world mountain peak. Each one of my sons have stared up the throat of Mount Everest, climbed on top of Machu Picchu, climbed Kilimanjaro, and wow. went to the top of the mountain crying and came down as a man. With internal victories, I can do hard things. I can do hard things, private victories, not public victories. Mm-hmm. My worst nightmare would be my kid to be the starting – and I'm sorry if anyone don't mean to, but I don't want my kids to be the starting quarterback, throw the winning touchdown and get carried off the shoulders as a yeah. junior because that's the definition of life. I want the victories to be internal 
So that 14-year-old trip of climbing a major world mountain peak and having that private accomplishment was profoundly impactful of my sons being able to do hard things. Mm. When they're 16 years old, they make agreement. Shake my hand. Never again will they ask for anything. They pay for their own college. They pay for their own missions. They pay for their own car when they get back, and they pay for all our family vacations. I then helped them create a business. My three oldest sons created million-dollar businesses when they were in high school. Uh, my second son did it twice. My fourth son did a book with me because he'd had everything saved by the time he was 12. And what concern do I have of my children ever living in my basement? Yeah. Uh, they take control of their own lives. Um, wow. When they're 18, they give it all back to the charity that they chose and uh, go serve on a mission, learn a, learn a language. Mm-hmm. And then when they come back, they kill their father. I don't want them to I, – I want my sons to kill me just in a basketball game. And uh, I want them to be their own man and be my peer. At that point, they are totally my peer and we're totally equal. And I ask for advice from them as much as they do from me. Wow. And it's just made for this beautiful, rich relationship of, of non-entitlement, valuing independence, and these root values that we put in place. I do have to add there's one other that you and Spencer are going to love <laughs> that I bolded on as young adults. And that was apology. This one came with apology. I've taken each of my sons as they, uh, they're 24, 25 into a level four security prison with incarcerated individuals that have even taken life. Yeah. And the context is, is most of these individuals never even had a first chance You don't want to be held accountable for the worst thing you've done. I don't want to be held for the worst accountable thing that I've done. And uh, we we all need second chances. And I'm sorry my generation created misogyny. We've created this divisive environment. We've got this terrible political uh, strife. Uh, We're messing the the environment up. My generation messed it up. I'm sorry. It's your responsibility (laughs) to fix it. Yeah. And so that's the final rites of passage. The wow. last one's a little more boring, but really interesting because I actually pulled out of a partner, Scott Ford, and all the secrets uh, that uh, very, very wealthy use, like family banking, okay. uh, family constitutions, and how they put the structure in place. And most people don't have a clue. So wow. that's the legato framework. And wow. I know I went really fast. No, that was, that's amazing and um, just really powerful. And I think um, I think it can be overwhelming to people, but I love the the simple steps, and I think customizing it to to your own family. I think of the rites of passage. I think that's a really, I guess that's one that really uh, resonates with me because um, we, we've been talking a lot about, or you know, I read the book um, "A Time to Build," mm-hmm. um, which is such a great book. Um, you have all of in, but he he talks about the the crumbling of institutions, yeah, and how dangerous that is. But yeah. what you're saying is these these institutions, and especially especially the institution of family, yeah, is such a a, a building block of a of a successful society. Um, and family can mean many different things, but. The idea that these institutions are formative, they, they form us. That's right. And, and if we don't have those, then, then it really does devolve into chaos and a lot of what we're seeing now. 
I think that that's dead right. And I really want to go back to this point is, is this is more profound for non-traditional families. And you don't see anything adored. I, where I kind of got part of this framework is as I was doing a lecture back in Harvard and got invited to a dinner. And this professor was talking about nothing indoors without doctrine, without symbology, and without traditions. And it really cemented it. Think of it is there's nothing indoors without those. And so families, we've got to make sure that we have things indoor, non-traditional family. And I think it's equally, if not more powerful for tribes. Yeah. If it works for the Utah Jazz, I'm just saying. <laughs> I know <laughs> what fans you. you guys are. <laughs> if it works for old Joe and his team, then it works for it works for uh, tribes too. But we've yeah. got to have things. The Qantas Club, for crying out loud, they have a logo, a symbol, a slogan, and cadences. But we yeah. don't do it in our families, our non-traditional families. Yeah. That's pathetic. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I remember sitting down with my family. My my dad was really um, kind of a little bit in this vein. Um, I remember him, we sat down and, and we did write a mission statement of values of what our family valued. I think we did look at doing a crest. I'm not sure we ever, <laughs> I'm trying to remember as a kid, we used to do, uh, my dad was, he would do family council literally every Sunday and we would take notes like it was, you know, take minutes. <laughs> it wasn't notes, it was minutes and they would reread like, like you would in a, in a business meeting. But um, anyway, he, that's amazing. So I, I do have that and yeah. I've, you know, Spencer and I, in our chaos, probably haven't done as much of this as we should have in our family. So it's a good reminder for us to. You do a to lot, Abby. <laughs> I, I've seen you, and you guys do a lot, and we just really thank you for yeah, thank for you. what you're doing for the state of Utah. Thank you. Well, Rich, this has been just a really delightful conversation for me. Um, again, feeling honored that you would share, uh, first of all, your your very very personal story, but also that you would share this powerful insight to, into um, this project that you, that you have been inspired to to create. And and I would love for everyone and anyone to to uh, who's interested in learning more um, will will get that information. So thank you for being here. Today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Abby. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you to Rich Christensen for being here on the program today, for opening up and sharing this very personal story with us. We feel so appreciative to to have had him. If you want to get more information about his new project, go to legatofamily.com. Thanks for being a friend.